Welcome everyone. So my next guest is the only clinical sexologist in the country. As well as being an art psychotherapist, she runs her own clinic in Dublin after achieving a sexology master's degree in Australia. She is currently the sex columnist with the Evening Herald. She has even given a TED talk and has also appeared on the Tommy Tiernan show. She's undoubtedly doing her very best to make Ireland more sexually educated. Emily Power-Smith, you are very welcome. How are you today? It's lovely to, to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. You're very welcome. Um, okay, so I know we can go lots of different ways with this conversation, but because this season's team is set around technology, social media and youth mental health, I want to start with this. So sex is something that is very much alive online today, particularly in the form of either pornography or some would argue even on social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok. Um, how do you think, Emily, is this affecting the sex education of young people today? Well, it's is it affecting their sex education? It's affecting their um, their accessibility. The accessibility of sex sex is is absolutely you know open to everybody now isn't it so you can get all this free porn from Pornhub and stuff just on your phone and it's really easy to access so you can see sex um very easily and that's new but is that educational does that actually help a person so yeah I mean if you see an act then you're educated that that, that act exists but then if you're trying to replicate that act with somebody in real life you have to keep in mind that it's it's acting you know it's like um watching the fast and the furious and then thinking you can drive you know it's it's not it's not the same as in real life and i think because we lack so much real education um about sex even that information hasn't been known so people have been going to and still go to porn for example to get the, the education that they deserve and that they healthily are looking for but what they're finding isn't necessarily going to really help them in real life situations hmm. so there's that um but also we're living in a very sexualized society you know sex is used to sell everything and and online you know the ads that were bombarded with it all the time so we're certainly more saturated with sexual imagery more than we were like when i was growing up you could you know turn something on or off read something or not read something now if you're googling something you're going to get images perhaps mm. that are sexualized or whatever and, and so it is different but I think there's a real difference between seeing sexual stuff and being educated. I think they're two really, really different things. Okay. And do you think there's a big gap there between the two at the moment? I do. I do. I think there are some amazing online resources for sure. I just think it's really tricky for people who arrive looking for information who don't have any to begin with. It's really hard for them to know which is the reliable information and which isn't. Yeah. And so much information now is put out to us as though the person giving it to us is an expert, when mm. in actual fact, odds are it's just their opinion or their personal experience of something. So yeah. um, as with any other topic, you know, doctors will always say to their patients, please don't Google your conditions. Please don't self-diagnose. You're going to think you're dying. 
And so my experience is similar with sexuality. People come to me and they've self-diagnosed by going online and, and they're really frightened and really worried at what they're learning about because they think they think it's it's this is the correct information and they can they can um, use it for their own for their own self-diagnosis and, and, and usually or often it's really unhelpful as well and and inaccurate. And then so this is something that people don't always associate together, but um, and something we're trying to um, do now is we're trying to make people more aware that sex actually has a big role to play in mental health. Um, so could you talk a bit more about that, about how the two are associated? Yeah, well, you know, we have we have major parts of our of us as beings, don't we? And, and you know, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to socialize or not. Um, but socializing is still a really important part of our lives, whether we find it easy or we don't to do, it's still a big part. And sex is another really important part of the, the human condition, of the human psyche, of the human physiology, whether we choose to be sexual or not. It's still very much within our, our, our life experience one way or another. So, of course, how we experience ourselves as sexual beings or not how we understand our orientation, our gender expression, all of these things are massively important. And, and they're, they're, in our, they're with us daily. It's not something we pick up and put down. It's not like a sport that you can take up or leave. This is something that's within our bodies. It's, it's a part of our hormonal, our hormonal hormone makeup. And so, um, you know, trying to compartmentalize it and put it aside and make it a choice just isn't how we're built it's not a natural thing to do um so of course then if we feel happy about ourselves sexually if we feel confident if we feel safe and we feel that we are empowered it's going to massively help our mental well-being and vice versa um uh, they, they they interplay the same as anything else does the same as how we eat the same as how we exercise the same as how we socialize these things really affect our mental well-being and our mental well-being really affects how we do these things so mm -hmm. it's vital yeah um and so i want to move in now i know uh, we've spoken about it briefly um so a big part of improving mental health then is improving sexual well-being and you come at, you come at it from the perspective or what probably the best perspective of it is approaching it from the pleasure side of things as opposed to the dangers of it um, can you explain this, please, in a bit more detail for our listeners? It's, it's really simple. Why do we become sexual? Why do we engage in sexual acts? You know, the very base reason that we hope the reason is anyway, I know it isn't for everybody, but that this is what I want to get to. If everybody was taught that, that there is great pleasure, both mentally, energetically, physically, psychologically to be had with good, enjoyable sexual encounters, then that's what we would be aiming for. And we would be learning how to discern the difference between an experience that is a bit frightening or feels a bit pressured or is painful versus a an experience that feels great in our bodies and in our minds. So it makes perfect sense to me that we would use a pleasure model to teach how to be sexual. It goes for how to have sexual encounters that are safe. You don't, if you're not feeling safe, you're probably not going to be enjoying yourself or it's going to be happening while you're not, you're going to be feeling a physical pleasure 
without feeling emotionally or psychologically safe or in a safe place that it's happening. So I'm looking at how do you feel fully safe? Um, and and so I think if you are using the pleasure model, you're going to take care of safety because that's how you can feel greatest pleasure because you're relaxed. If you're going to if you you're going to want real consent based on pleasure means that you're not going to get coercive uh, experiences as much. I mean, this is this is the ideal. Obviously, we're human. There's always going to be um, pitfalls and trapdoors in everything we try to do brilliantly. But this model means that I'm not going to accept a oh, okay, go on then from you if I want to be sexual with you. I want to hear a hell yeah, come on, I'm into it, let's do it then I know I have consent, right? Yeah. And that's based on pleasure. I really want to get naked with you because it's going to be so much fun. There's consent there, where, as opposed to, oh God, well, I'm not really sure because deep down I know this is going to hurt, but I can't tell you that, but I don't know why it hurts, but I don't think it should. But I, to give an example from a, a pain perspective. So, yeah. uh, and then the other thing that's really important is that, you know, we've been teaching the fear model and the moral model always. Yeah. And where's the proof that it works? Show me the proof that it works. Yeah. You know, we need to start being being realistic and pragmatic about this. Teaching people to be afraid of being sexual beings, to be afraid of expressing themselves sexually and to be afraid of sexual acts doesn't stop people from having them. All it stops them doing is having pleasurable, consenting safe encounters because they don't know what they are because we don't teach them yeah. so you know everybody knows pretty much that you can get pregnant if you have sex and it hasn't stopped us having all these unwanted pregnancies because it isn't because the wish to be close the wish to be naked the wish to feel sexy the wish to have pleasure outweighs that because that's natural it's a natural drive for us to want to be sexual it is yeah. unnatural to be afraid of sexuality that's a moralistic man-made and i mean unfortunately man not just person made um a model that that is is about control and about uh commodifying sexuality and the and the sexual beings and and it really doesn't it doesn't have any place in in our modern day society where we're trying to learn about respecting difference and um, celebrating variety and celebrating pleasure and celebrating empowerment. Mm. You know, we need to move on. Yeah, um, I I so I had so many questions come to me there. <laughs> I'm going to start with the one because I know um, you talked about the importance of feeling safe that closely ties with consent. Now. You could argue um, consent is kind of tying then with this kind of like this danger model. It's being taught basically, I don't know if there a different way to teach this, but it comes up now that like young boys, for example, are maybe being taught like, oh, you're a really bad person. Uh, you are capable of like raping any other girl and stuff. So how would you go about teaching consent? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is the message because the way it's spoken about currently, uh, and you know, things are changing slowly and, and hopefully for the better. But up until now, the way it's been taught, we must protect our little girls. We must keep our little girls safe. I have such a problem with that for the reason you've just said that that is an implication that all boys and it's only about binary models by the way nobody else gets even spoken about so all boys then are potential 
rapists or aggressors or perpetrators. I have a real problem with that. I have a problem with little boys, you know, growing up with this, this message, this underlying message that they need to be controlled and they need to be protected from. It, I have it a, also, sorry to interrupt you, it also validates it. It's the issue if it does ever happen as well. And that's like, that's not a way to teach it at all. Yeah, and exactly. And then the other bit to it is it puts all the onus on the girls, because there's only girls and boys in this argument anyway, to protect and to control. They're the gatekeepers of sexuality, of sexual acts. Well, we know that can't work because the whole point of sexual assault a lot of the time is about taking power over somebody. So it doesn't matter that a, a, a female says no to certain aggressors. That, and, and we know that that doesn't work. And what it does is it brings on victim blaming and it brings on a, 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 a it, it, it cuts out a space for people who've been assaulted in whatever way that is to be able to talk about the, the gray area of it. It's like if, I, if you didn't shout and scream and kick and fight, then is it really an assault? Is it really rape? Well, you know, these are the conversations we need to be able to have. And if we keep demonizing one whole part of society, in this case, males, and putting all the pressure on females to uh, to to uh, control it, well, it hasn't worked. It doesn't work. It leaves loads of people out of the conversation completely. And you know what? It doesn't need to be gendered at all. Why can't we just talk about being kind, being boundaried, being good listeners, being good communicators? It doesn't have to, there's no need to mention gender in that conversation. I want yeah. any person, if they see somebody in trouble at a party, unconscious with somebody near them look, looking a bit dodgy, I want anybody to be able to feel they can go up to that anybody and help that person. Gender doesn't come, shouldn't come into it, I believe. Yeah. And I think, I think it would make the conversation a lot easier to have and it would be a lot more inclusive. So that's the model we're using. And yeah. so the pleasure model would be more around um, how do you know what feels good? Okay. You need to know what feels good and what you enjoy in order to consent to it, right? Or you need to know that you're willing to try something and you can say no and that'll be all right at some point. If you're using the pleasure model, that becomes a lot easier to negotiate. It also doesn't pit Again, the binary model, men against women or males against females. It doesn't pit them against each other where guys are trying to get one over on a girl and, you know, pick on the drunkest girl. And then she, you know, it takes that out of it. And it also allows for same sex or for non-binary people to be a part of the conversation because we all need to be included in talking about this stuff. So if so in countries I think Norway is a good example. Denmark, certainly, where they have much, much more positive sex positive education, uh, where they teach girls about masturbation, for example, those girls are much more able to say, uh, no, thank you, that fucking hurts. You're not going to do that to me or I'm not into it. Or, I don't like it. I don't need you to give me my orgasms because I already know how to give myself orgasms. So. Mm. The, the, the research is there in the countries where they have this better level of education to show that, for example, those girls are in a much stronger and more empowered position to give a, a genuine yes or no to situations. Whereas yeah. where if, if, a, if a female is waiting to get pleasure from their partner rather than have their own pleasure, 
that's all they have. So they're more inclined to say yes and hope for the best. And that's that's what happens. I, I also think now, correct me if my if I'm wrong, this is just an opinion. Um, I feel that with this fear model, the problem is people are um young people particularly are almost seeing sex as something they need to get out of the way. Yeah. Um, they want yeah. to take the box of saying they've done it and that they're not a virgin anymore, for example. And the problem yeah. there then is they're willing to have sex with somebody they might have no and no relationship with whatsoever, as opposed to somebody's company who they actually enjoy. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a big problem. Yeah, and I like the way you said that. I was wondering where you were headed with that, um, where you said company they really enjoy, because you can have great first time encounters and ongoing encounters with people you're not in relationships with. So we need to get over that. Yeah, and we need to talk. I mean, the you know the majority of people actually aren't in relationships. So of young people. So we need to be talking about how those people have great sex, how they masturbate and have great orgasms, how they understand their bodies and how they understand. Because when you understand all that stuff, you're more able to talk about it. When you talk about it, you're more able to negotiate and figure out if somebody is safe to have your first encounter with rather than, oh, shit, OK, I'm the only one in my group who hasn't had sex yet. I'm going to go out tonight, get langers grab the first person I find and see what happens and hope for the best. And at least it'll be done. And I, I do hear that a lot. You're right. I still, that is still a common approach and there is no pleasure in that. Again, we're yeah. so far from the pleasure model. Um, and so now um, it's always the Scandinavian countries. I'm always laughing when I'm talking to experts. <laughs> yeah. The Scandinavian countries that are doing what they should be doing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that they are educating uh, ch children about, for example, masturbation. Yeah. Um, what age should this education start or should it start just as soon as possible um, about positive sex? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, sex, sex positivity, you need to have a level of emotional intelligence and sexual intelligence. And that mm. begins at a very young age. So it's age appropriate. The thing that the thing that doesn't work, again, as we know, is the talk, you know, that happens too late with really mortified parents who are really don't know what to say. And the kid goes, it's all right, dad, I already know. And it's like, oh, thank God. And it's like, you know, that's still happening a lot. Um, it's too late to talk to your kid when they're they're hitting puberty. It's too late. It's not you're not doing a good enough job anymore. Maybe that worked when there wasn't Internet but that is not okay now. So I, I, so learning how to talk is the first and most important and fundamental skill for parents and teachers and young and children to learn. What you're talking about comes second to that. So you can begin learning how to talk about body parts from the age of two, for example. When a child is beginning to point to parts of the body, you give them the correct names for the body parts, for the genitals. Mm -hmm. This has been proven time and time again to create a feeling of confidence and empowerment, and even in little children. A little child comes home from school and says, you know, I've got a rash on my vulva. And they feel proud of themselves because they're able to say, as opposed to, oh, I have a, an achy, achy on my ding dong or my wing wang or my ping ping or whatever, you know, name. And, and if they try need to go to somebody who isn't a parent who shares that language with them, there's research to show that children get very shamed. They get very unsure. They get very frightened because they're talking to an adult who doesn't know the language they're using. 
and it's very hard, then it gets very difficult for them. So you begin early. So yeah, that's my vulva. That's um, that's my penis. Those are my testicles. That's my anus. And you start talking about it and just, and that's it. That's the conversation. So it isn't even a conversation. It's just using. So that's how you begin. And even that for parents is huge because I work all the time with adults who can't name their own genitalia. Yeah. They can't say the words. Um, you know, I've, I work with people who actually are drawn to tears when the the word vulva is used, you know, because they're so ashamed and so, and it's, it's, it is more so with, with people who have vulvas that suffer more with that shame, I think, because it's even less spoken about than penises are. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about that a little more if you like in a, in a minute, but so you start at that age and, and you don't need to be talking about sex. For years, you're just talking. So pleasure then can come into it. You know, little children start rubbing themselves. They start learning. Oh, I rub my teddy on my, uh, you know, on, she she knows the right language. This is a little girl we're saying in this instance. And she she learns that she can rub on her side of her bed or on a towel or on her cuddly toy or on a chair is very popular for little girls. They're, they're rubbing their clitorises. Yeah, it feels really good. But that isn't sexual. So it's only when adults put a sexual value on children's behaviors that it gets dark in any way or worrying in any way. If a child learns that touching that the top of their arm and rubbing it a certain way feels good, they're going to keep doing it. If their vulva feels good or their clitoris or their penis feels good to be rubbed, they're going to do it. It's not sexual for them. So then you start teaching them the difference between public and private and that they have a right to their pleasure, but they, 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 they can do it privately and keep it safe. It's a special thing. And then you start those conversations. And then, so by the time it gets, there's a need for it to be sexual, you're already both experts. The child and the adult are experts in having these conversations and yeah. it's all just natural and it flows much more easily and it isn't a conversation. So um, just to be clear, going back to the point, and now this is my societal shame maybe coming in talking about sex, but going back to the young child is getting pleasure, for example, as you mentioned, maybe off yeah. the teddy. Um, yeah. The immediate response, I, I know, um, I know the immediate response for lots of parents will be, no, stop doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. But that you, you're saying 100% that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah, they're not going to stop doing it. They're just going to learn that they should be ashamed about their bodies and ashamed about their pleasure. And then they're going to spend loads of money paying me when they grow up into adults because they can't orgasm, because they have sexual pain, because they're too ashamed to talk about their genitalia or their pleasure. They've heard that sex can be pleasurable, but it's never been that for them. Yeah. And inevitably, it goes back to something like that. Not always, not always, but inevitably there will be shame somewhere that's happened to that person when mm -hmm. they were in, in their formative years. Yeah. So why should it be shameful? It's pleasurable. They're not doing something sexual. It's not like they're, it's not like an adult touching, you know, masturbating in front of them. It's a little child who's found a pleasure zone in their body and they're rubbing it. It's kind of sweet. So yeah. all they need is to be told where to do it and that it's normal and it's natural but it's really important that it's their own personal, private pleasure. That's the bit, you know, and, and they still will do it in public because they're <laughs> kids. And it's just the thing you have to go through a little bit, but they'll learn. Yeah. Um, and do you think this is better to be coming from parents uh, over teachers, for example, or do you think both is beneficial, like the, 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 this conversation? 
Oh, I think around masturbation, it should be parents for yeah. sure. Yeah. But I think, I think self-pleasure should be taught. If there's going to be anything taught in schools, I think self-pleasure should be taught. It doesn't have to be how to masturbate. That's my job. I teach that. And I'm very happy to teach that. And, and teachers don't have to, teachers don't have to do that. Teachers don't, you know, they have that. We've got to remember that these poor teachers, a lot of the time, they're just the same as everyone else. Often, in my experience, the youngest, most inexperienced teachers get get lumbered with teaching the sex ed part of, of, a, of a curriculum because no one else wants to teach it. So they're, they're young people going through their own stuff with their own sexuality, and they've no more confidence about how to teach this than anyone else. And that's not OK. And they shouldn't that pressure shouldn't be on them to do a really good job unless it really interests them and they really like it. It should yeah. be outsourced to somebody like me or somebody who is comfortable to talk about sexual pleasure. And then as well as that, you have to be appropriate because it's within a school setting. And I understand that every, you know, you can't teach people how to masturbate in a school setting necessarily, not in unless you're in Scandinavia. But um, but you can certainly mention it and you can certainly start by teaching the correct body parts. I mean, the clitoris isn't taught. Yeah. In the vast majority of, of sex ed, a whole big part of the of the female anatomy is left out. Yeah. And that's our pleasure zone. Mm. The penis is talked about, but I'm sure it's only talked about because it sticks up and sticks out and people can't ignore it. The, the female sexual aspects are only based on pregnancy, I would say. Maybe. Yes. And we're taught that the, the, the male sexual organ is the penis and the female sexual organ is the vagina, which is completely incorrect. The female sexual organ is the clitoris. Mm -hmm. We all begin with clitorises in the womb and the clitoris develops into a penis and testicles. Yeah. And um, my personal experience of sex education when I was a child was in sixth class. It was part of the confirmation, which we haven't even discussed. The obviously trying to detach from the Catholic Church is a big issue in Ireland, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. In <laughs> My experience was they showed um, pictures of the penis, they showed pictures of the vagina, they, they um, divided the boys and the girls. And um, and it was just the boys immaturely laughing at the penis, and that was it. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. Beneficial at all? Yeah. So we get to yeah, you get to learn because your bits hang out. You know, the male genitalia hangs out and is visible. It gets more spoken about, and it's more understandable because okay, so there's your there's your scrotum, and in that are your testicles, and so that hangs out, and that's got you know. And then you can go home and you can actually touch your your scrotum and you can go, oh, that's got some sensation to it. I either like or I don't or I play around it. Same with the penis. It's not so easy for people with 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 vulvas to, you know, get a hold of their ovaries and, you know, stick a finger in their womb. You know, we can't we don't because we're not given any pleasure model. We have nothing to explore. There's nothing, no reason for a female to look inside her labia and discover what's in there because we don't know that there's anything to look look for um so that's a problem because then we're bringing up all these people who if they're not able to find useful education and they're not getting educated at home are going to not understand that they can they can receive any more pleasure than the pleasure they receive from giving pleasure to their partner mm. which is the male which is the, the the mainstream porn model that women are done to 
and they get pleasure by being done to. They get pleasure by providing whatever the male wants to do to them. That's how women get pleasure. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I work with a lot. All, all ages of, of, of people actually not really understanding that women's pleasure can just be about women and about mm. their own pleasure, that they don't yeah. have to wait to have it given to them. And it doesn't, you know, that the penis isn't the king of all pleasure and isn't the, the summit that must be climbed. I mean, it's amazing to me the amount of of people of all genders who believe that if the penis isn't erect and isn't ejaculating, we have failed. Yeah. Sexually, it's been a failure. Mm. Um, I want to go back. You made a point that you said you might go into in relation to uh, shame and specifically females, but I'm going to ask you a question first that kind of ties in. So as we've spoken about, we've now developed a sex ed aspect of our mental health program um, for secondary schools. Um, one issue that we're afraid we have is that it's more orientated towards uh, males rather than females. So what can prevent pleasurable sex for females particularly? Or what would you uh, think would be important to educate young? Uh, yeah, brilliant. So we get taught about contraception yeah. if we're not being full, if it's not the complete Catholic model we get taught about contraception um but what we're not taught and, and so part of that is the pill and so what we're not taught about is the impact the pill can have on women girls who are put on the pill so girls get put on the pill um it's like under the table in case they get sexual and it'll help stop them getting pregnant but also it's because maybe they have acne or maybe their periods are really, really heavy and, 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 and they have to go to bed for two, a day, a month or two days a month or whatever. So girls can get put on the pill as young as 13, 14, 15 before they're sexually active, for example. And for a, a lot, not all uh, young people, women of any age going on the pill, the whole point of it is to mess with your hormones so that you're, you're not, uh, producing an egg every month. So um, that's going to mess with your estrogen levels a lot of the time. And it's estrogen that creates natural lubrication. So when a, a, a girl, a female is turned on, her vagina should naturally lubricate. It should become wet and slippery naturally. If you're on the pill, for example, it won't. Now, the first thing is because female pleasure is never talked about the people who own the vulvas and the people playing with the vulvas don't know what to do with the vulvas in order to create pleasure and lubrication naturally a lot of the time anyway. So some girls just get, you know, they, or, you know, they, they get turned on by kissing and a bit of and that, that works fine, but for others that isn't a turn on for them. So they're not going to lubricate as easily anyway, but add in the pill for a lot of people with vulvas or the, implant is even worse um, that lasts for for ages and people think it's a great option and, and young people are given this it will it will stop them lubricating even if they're turned on so then they're having dry sex which is really painful the vagina gets in in extreme cases tiny tiny little paper cuts inside the vaginal canal i mean you can just imagine the burning and the, the pain of that so if a, if a, that's one of the main causes for young people, for, for people with vulvas to have pain with penetrative sex. Um, if that continues, um, sometimes then that 
that person, if they're unlucky, the muscles of the vaginal opening will begin to close to, to tighten at the idea of any penetration. The muscles are doing a really good job. They're protecting the vagina from, from harm. Um, but because nobody understands this, it's like, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And, and then it, the worry kicks in and the anxiety, the blame, the embarrassment, and then it can become a real problem that they'll need to see somebody like me about. Often starting due to no lubrication. Um, another thing that can really be bad for a, a person with a vulva is, or a person with a clitoris is because people don't understand clitorises, um, you know, that they have about 8,000 8, nerve endings in just the little glands of the clitoris. There's only about 4,000 in a whole penis. You know, if, if so quite often, and, and if they're getting their information from porn, quite often the way clitorises get handled, get touched, is way too rough, way too fast, way too soon, and it actually hurts. Mm -hmm. So again, that can that can bring on pain for, for people, and they think there's something wrong with them because they don't know that they just have a normal clitoris that shouldn't be touched that way. So if a, if a person with a penis is playing with a person with a clitoris, the person with the penis will often touch the clitoris the way they'd like their penis to be touched, which is usually with more force and more pressure. And interestingly, it goes the other way too. Clitoris owners will often not put enough pressure or speed onto the how they touch a penis because they're like, oh, I'm so worried I'll hurt it, I'll damage it, because they're imagining what their own genitals feel like. It's really interesting. It goes both ways. But that's I'm, another real reason. I'm even thinking, Emily, like the benefit that this would get not only for females, but for males hearing about this, like young, yeah. young boys, I think would be so, so helpful. Um, I, I think it would ease their um, fear, as we've spoken about, yeah. or fear the shame of not knowing what, what they have to do. I think it would be so, so helpful. Exactly. And, and, and what you see in porn is acted. It's not real. It's not. It's fake orgasms, um, you know, and and it's also though you've got to remember that the, the porn actors are this is what they do for a living. They are experts. They are professionals in what they do they are the fast and the furious drivers of sex. So trying to copy them or emulate them, um, you know, they are way more able for pressure and speed than your average person because yeah. they, they are, you know, it, it does, you do get, you do get more, you're, you're, you do get hardened to certain sexual acts and speeds and pressures. The more you do it, of course you do. Yeah. And um, I want to go back to now. So you said it's important to start having the language, start having the conversation at home between parents and children. And you mentioned that you have parents coming in. They don't have the language themselves. Yeah. Um, over the years, do you think the situation is improving in Ireland? Is sex education improving or do you think it's stayed um, stable? Have you seen the the new the new uh, sex ed program they've just they've just come out with? Yeah. <laughs> I just I just can't get. I am just speechless. Mm. Oh no! So if you'd asked me this question before I read that, I'd have said, "I'm hoping, you know, here's hoping, and things must be moving forward." And da da da. And then I read that, and I'm just my. I just hung my head and. Maybe I'm an optimist though, but I have read um, a few articles where principals have openly said we're not teaching that, which I found <laughs> um, slightly. Um, I'm maybe just being hopeful, but 
that we are yes. going in the right direction but yeah I remember watching I don't know if you saw it, it was a few years ago now but there was a um oh god what's the name of that one of the late night um political shows on on RTE I think. I'm thinking prime time but I'm probably <laughs> could have been something like that I don't have telly anymore and I can't remember it's years ago but um they were talking about sex ed in schools and they were talking about the purity movement and there was a, a crowd what are they called do you do you know they're they go into schools now they're so it'll come back to me I'm Christy I'm perimenopausal so I just draw I just forget really things I know off by heart I forget it'll come back to me so they are a gang who are you see this is the, the scary thing so there's no funding in our schools are very poor in Ireland or that's the what that's what we're told is very little funding so these people will come into your school for free and they have this beautifully prepared program to teach about sex ed in schools and it's the purity model from the bible belt in america that's where they get their funding from so these but these um sort of right right wingish um conservative uh religious groups and churches in america have so much money they send their missionaries all over the world including to ireland and they pay for them. And so the, when I watched that, they'd been in 107 schools the previous year. And yeah. they teach the really, really dangerous stuff. The real fire and brimstone, but kind of masked in, you know, they, I don't know if you've heard of the sellotape um, no. exercise. So they would stick sellotape around a, a, some, a, a pupil's wrist and then the other pupils wrists as well and they would say okay now go and stick your wrists to each other you see how sticky that is the first time you do it now keep sticking your sellotape to other people's wrists see how it loses its stick so quickly that's what happens when you have when you have sex when you've sex not with your married partner uh, the the first time you'll be able to bond with the person but over time you keep having sex you can't bond you can't actually fall in love and have a it, it ruins your capacity to have a good relationship every time you have sex and yeah. um, they they that was one of the exercises they taught and and they're probably still teaching so you know this program again that's cut that's the the church that's church funded that's how they get into schools because they don't charge yeah um, I'm going to again be optimistic and hope though, and I know we're going to have this conversation later, but um, it's because the schools are lacking funding, the hope now is, um, and this was kind of my question in relation to, are, do you think individuals are becoming more um, sexually intelligent? Is that my hope now in the future is that parents will kind of step up and parents will be willing to pay uh, money towards their children being educated on their sex. And I think we're trying to do that through understanding or highlighting because I don't think it's well known well enough that your sexual health has such a big role to play in your mental health. Because mental health, people are concerned now, which is great, that um, most, like nearly every ch parent will want their child taking care of their mental health. Yeah. They don't think sexual health comes into that when, in fact, it really, really does because, like, for example, when you... um when you made the point about the um, young girls not um, not experiencing pleasure from sex, they think there's something wrong with them, they start attaching shame to themselves. That's what leads to other mental health issues as well. And I don't Spot think on. people are yeah. aware of that. I think it's a big, big problem. Um, 
spot on and even on that like sorry to cut in sorry did you have a question you carry on do you have a question for no, me no no you're, we're, you're we're formulating were you you're fine, okay. you're fine. I, I when i was an art therapist i worked in, a, in an area in four different schools and i spoke to care workers and youth workers in that area and you know uh, this was before i trained one of them another reason why i wanted to train but you know they they were they were telling me stories of 11 year old kids who knew enough from their from their sex ed that penis and vagina sex could get could cause pregnancy so their first penetrative experience was anal so these were children of that age mm. so you know they knew anal wouldn't get you pregnant but you know there's a whole thing about how to have successful anal sex penetrative anal sex that that means it doesn't hurt but without that information and that education it's agony mm -hmm. you know and it's and it's quite traumatic yeah and so again the, the even listening to people talking then the emphasis was on the little girls that were receiving this and i was just so interested to think about those little boys who have even less of a space to go anywhere with how that was for them because they're the boys, they're the perpetrators. They're the ones who have to be all tough and know, know everything and cool about it. And that's just a very intense example of how I think people, males generally are expected to be around sexuality. And they, so they have to carry the scars and the bruises, the fears, the trauma of any sexual experience. They mm. just have to carry that inside even more than girls. And as for people who are non-binary, it's the, it's the same. I think that the, the, so many young people are carrying all of this stuff inside them because they don't know who to talk to about it, who's reliable. And that is having a massive effect on their mental well-being. And, and anxiety is through the roof. Yeah. And I, I have no doubt that if you're worried about how you look, if you're worried about God, I'm going to meet my partner this weekend. I'm using the term partner to to uh, it sounds a very grown up term for a teenager, but I'm you know whatever gender that is, and we're going to be getting our kit off and we're going to be doing stuff. And I'm really worried, and I'm really it's going to hurt, and I'm really worried that it's I'm abnormal or that you know my labia are the wrong length or that my penis is too small because it doesn't look like the penis is in porn or all these genuine genuine fears that that young people have massively impacts levels of anxiety depression social isolation mm. because they don't feel good enough to leave their bedrooms yeah um you brought up a topic now i also wanted to discuss because um your clinic works with people dealing with gender identity issues um you've kind of mentioned it briefly throughout this is something I do not have expertise on. So I know this is probably a big question, but if you had somebody come in with a gender identity issue, um, what's the approach for that? I'm coming from the perspective of student or child opens up to parent or teacher um, that maybe they're having gender identity issues. Um, how do you respond to that? So I'm speaking to the adult to help them to know how to respond to a younger person. Yes, exactly. I think the most important thing is to sit and shut up and, and, and make good eye contact and be gentle and listen and learn because everybody's experience of their gender questioning is different. 
And it depends on how their upbringing and their home life and their friends and their experience of themselves is. So you can't have a blanket response really, other than to shut up and listen and learn and ask questions. And don't you don't have to be an expert. Nobody is an expert on another person's uh, experience of their sexuality or gender, whatever it happens to be. So really it's about slowing down, breathing. Adults, breathe, remember you're also getting nervous. You're also feeling you're going into an area you mightn't have any experience of. And the most, the most valuable thing a person in that place can hear is, wow, thank you so much for, for telling me this. This is such a big deal that you're telling me this. I really appreciate it. And then I have some experience of it and blah, 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 or I don't have much experience of this. So tell me more about your experience. And you know what? I'm going to learn about it on your behalf. I'm going to, I'm going to find out what, you know, how can I help you? What do you need? I will find out some, so I will go and educate myself so that I can be a better help to you because you've done such a brave thing. So you don't have to be an expert and you don't have to shut down a conversation if you're not. I think it's really, really important not to speak down to someone and not to pretend that you know their lived experience, particularly around this kind of thing. I look, I'm 50. I'm an old, old person now. And so if I was listening to a 15 year old, I would not pretend to know what their world is like, let alone how it is with gender questioning, because I did not grow up in this world. So I need to yeah. shut up and listen, really. Mm. I, Young people I, are amazing. They're amazing. They they don't need me to say, oh, I'm wrecking my gear, we no Wi-Fi. I mean, really, let's listen. I was just going to say I, I'm late twenties and I don't think I could even empathize with a uh, with a fifteen year old. I agree. I agree because it's moving work. that quickly, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, Emily, I know I could keep you here a lot longer, but I'm gonna limit myself now to two questions. Um this is a question we ask every um guest. Um if you could educate children of the next generation on one thing, I'm going to be difficult here now, Emily, because I know obviously positive sex education is going to be your go-to. But um, if you're really insistent, you can go with that one. But if there's anything <laughs> else as well, you could educate children of the next generation on, what would it be? Take your time. I know that's a big question. So, I mean, I think, I think once you're coming from a sex a genuinely sex positive angle you're, you're on the right path so I think I would teach that pl sexual pleasure is not just important it's your human right that sexual pleasure is something to be proud of and to be celebrated to be explored and expressed that's I think and, and, and you know real pleasure for you and the person you're with will really knock out a lot of the dangers, the coercion, the, the assaults. Um, mm. It is a big question and it's a difficult one to answer because again, in, within Irish culture, I would love, I would love to see what would happen if sexual pleasure and expression was normalized. I wonder how young people's drinking habits might be impacted by that as well. You know, I think it would have, a massive knock-on effect socially for, for young people, for all people, because 
the Irish, you know, we have to have a few pints, a few drinks before we can get our kits off. You know, I'd love that to be different. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an emotion regulation strategy um, of awkwardness, shame, embarrassment, I think. Um, yeah, I remember a, an educator telling she was working in schools and she she was listening to children talk and a 14 year old boy saying you know oh you know i'm not really popular i, I don't with girls um they all went to dis, the dis, the local disco at weekends and he said i just wait till i can spot the drunkest girl and then i take her out the back uh and she's too drunk to know what's happening and then i can go into school on monday and boast with the other guys uh that i got mine and that i you know and that what how is he going to be when he's 18 when he's 28 mm -hmm. how is he going to relate to women how is he going to relate to himself and yeah. um, so you know I would love to know how many places uh would be impacted socially by just normalizing sexual pleasure mm -hmm. yeah it's funny because I think it would benefit like it would benefit even the government massively in ways they well, probably wouldn't. You can just pick that. out the ones that would benefit to have a bit of sexual pleasure, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's a perfect place to end it. Um, last thing, Emily, where can people find you? Um, because I know after this conversation, we'll no doubt be getting people in contact interested in your work. So where can people find you? So I have a website, uh, empowersme.com, empowersme. I'm also on Instagram, but I'm very bad at it because I'm 50 and I can't I can't get my head around it very well. And uh, Twitter and face. I have a Facebook page, which is empowersme, which is, uh, again, I haven't been very good at it recently, but it has a lot of really great information on it. And on my Instagram and Facebook, I've actually begun making some web comics um, to educate people. Um, so I am beginning to do a little bit myself and trying to make them uh, accessible to all ages and to everybody. So I've got, I've, I've got a, an amazing illustrator and we've only done three so far, but we've gone two on the clitoris and one on the vulva so far. And there's just endless web comics to be done. So I'm hoping to keep building that as a resource for people. That's good. That's a unique um, form of education. I like it. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for coming on, Emily. Um, to be honest, I know we could have talked about a lot more, uh, but we do have to keep them to an hour. So we might have to have you back on maybe another time. No um, worries, yeah. Thank you again. And uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you.